um, I'm going to unfold the scripture in the message as we open to the book of Job in a few moments. But for right now, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the freedom to worship. We thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, we have at this time the ability to uh, have live stream across our country and to express with freedom the truths of your word. We do pray, Lord, though, for our country. We cannot take anything for granted. We are not promised these freedoms. We enjoy them, Lord, but we pray that we would use them well and that the gospel would go forth to the world, it would penetrate into our country, and that we as a church would be faithful to show the love of Jesus to those in our city, especially, Lord, in this community, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross in our behalf would be fully on display in our lives. We do pray, Lord, that you'd be with uh, Shane and Alicia and the family. We ask for your continued blessing upon them, and we pray particularly for Ian as he continues to recover uh, from this accident. Thank you, Lord, that he's doing so well, and uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, he's walking well again. We pray that there'd be no further complications in his recovery. We praise you for that, Lord. We praise you that Nick and Karen's grandson is, has been, uh, is home from the neonatal unit and that he is progressing well. We praise you also, Lord, for the, the encouraging word of the adoption and that that's been confirmed for Mackenzie and Lillian. We pray that you would be with BJ and Michelle as they raise their four daughters. Thank you, Father, for these wonderful answers to prayer. But we also want to pray, Lord, that you would be with uh, those in our church body who are hurting, those who are grieving, those who are ill, those who have job challenges, who have family challenges. We pray, Lord, for Anne Johnson, that you would be with her and be with Leah and Damon as they continue to minister to her. Lord, you know when her time is, and we trust that into your hands. And we pray, Lord, we would just be faithful to love her well, to encourage Damon and Leah as they care for her. I pray also, Lord, that you would be with the Arnie family and John's uh, homegoing. We pray for Francis, we pray for Kirk and for Steve, and we ask, Lord, your blessing upon this family in their time of grief, but also, Lord, their time of celebration. Lord, we want to thank you for the dads in the room and those who are he hearing on live stream. We pray your blessing upon them and ask, Lord, that we would uh, pattern our fatherhood after our Heavenly Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 1, we're going to get there in a moment. This week I received an email from a good friend. He's, an, he's one of those uh, guys with a, uh, his brain wouldn't fit in this room. He's a bioethics tank, a think tank guy, maybe a tank guy, think tank guy. And this is what he wrote. <clears throat> the devastating events of the past few weeks from Buffalo to California to Uvalde to the Southern Baptist Church scandals, and I think we would add to the recent shootings in Chattanooga and the things that are going on here, and it's hard to keep up with them, honestly. Anyway, he, he writes, these things have driven me to a deep lament a word I do not often use. I'm also driven to ask, what sorts of virtue-forming communities 
do we have to build or rebuild to make events like these unthinkable? And then he says this, our mediating institutions are largely lost. What we've been doing isn't working. So, don't lose the thread of that in the words. What does he mean by mediating institutions? What he means is that in previous decades, the family, the church, and believe it or not, the schools were virtue-forming communities. And all three of those have been weakened. So what's the solution? Politics. Let's add the mediating, value-forming community of the government. <laughs> Let's not. Political solutions are just band-aids that don't address the true issue, which is the infection of sin and its impact throughout our culture. Betsy and I have a commercial. Have you ever been watching the television and there's there's a commercial that comes on that you love to hate? You just, every time I see that thing, I just cringe. It's very anti, it's by Verizon, and it's very anti-family. There's a man and a woman, and the camera's on them, and they look miserable. And they explain that they got married for the shared plan. And then they had children for the family plan. And the camera pans out, and there are nine children who need to be in a zoo. And then the woman realized that her sister got the same low rate without the husband and children. And then the camera switches over to a luxury domestic scene where this woman is sipping her tea in designer outfits all by herself. Happy without the bother of husband and kids and marriage. It's intended to be funny. It's not. When did the mediating institution become your cell phone plan? Being a parent is an awesome responsibility. Being grandparents, too, is a wonderful role. I've been reading the autobiography of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and uh, his life was changed by the work ethic and the moral expectations placed on him by the grandfather who raised him. It's quite a story. There's nothing more joyful than being a dad, than being a mom, a grandmom, a granddad, and there's nothing more heart-wrenching than when bad things happen to those children or grandchildren, or when they make tragic, irreversible decisions. My worst case ever was conducting a funeral for the grandson of one of my lifelong friends. When the boy died of an accidental drug overdose. I was thankful for the opportunity to share the gospel with 
all of his high school peers, but I hurt for my friend. He, in watching him yearn for his grandson, in watching him ache for his daughter, who's frequently arrested. And I noticed in the paper, the last one was last week. Parenting has its joys, it has its sorrows, its challenges, and it has also its amazing times of deep fulfillment. There, there can be this wonderful point in time when, although your children never stop being your children, when something spectacular is added, a deep abiding friendship. It doesn't always happen or happen in the same way with each child, but when that happens, it is a great blessing from God. Parents are to raise their children to love and glorify God. And as children mature, they are to gradually move, and you've heard me say this many times, from, to move from independence, I'm sorry, from total dependence, a little bit different, from total dependence on you as their parents to independence from you while at the same time growing in their lifelong dependence on their heavenly father. That's the goal of child rearing for a believing parent. God is our heavenly father. And parenting is also our laboratory in which God teaches us about unconditional love, about patience, about pain, about joy, and about also what it's like when we, as God's children, either possibly dishonor him or please him and honor him through the ways in which we live. This is God's plan. So where do we go in the Bible to find good examples of God's plan lived out in flesh? Honestly, I think there are precious few examples <laughs> uh, in the Old Testament. I do not want my family to be like the family of Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon. Maybe Joshua. Um, but today I'm going to be talking about one of the best examples of human fatherhood in the Bible. And that is Job. And it's a story that we're not going to be looking at the details of it. We're going to be looking at a snapshot of a handful of verses here and there. Um, and we have studied this book in its entirety before in decades past. It's been a long time. But my thoughts keep coming back to this man and the integrity of his life as a father before God. So turn to Job chapter 1. And I'm going, to, I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 to 3. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man, and he describes four qualities, was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 50 female donkeys, and very many servants. 
that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And that, we're going to stop at that point, his wealth, greatest in terms of wealth, he is the wealthiest man that there was. Uh, your, your wealth was measured in terms of, of cattle and land and those kinds of assets that you have. Now, I'm going to pause right here and make a few observations about Job, about the book itself. I believe that the book of Job describes real events that took place in history, and the timing of them probably just before the time of Abraham and the covenant that God made with him. But the structure of this book is remarkable. The bulk of the book is written in the language of emotion, poetry. That's the bulk of the book, but it's bracketed on the two ends, bookends, by the language of history, prose. In other words, chapters 1 and 2 of Job are prose. Chapters 3 through the first part of chapter 42 are poetry. And then the last part of chapter 42 is prose again. And the story, when you look at the stories that those two bookends, those two prose sections tell, it's no surprise that they are entitled Once Upon a Time, and then when you look at the end, twice upon a time. Makes perfect sense when you understand the book. Job himself, as we've seen, is a CEO of a huge operation. But Job is more than a businessman. He is a godly man. He loved God, and his qualities were listed in verse 1. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. But here's what you may not know. Later in chapter 31 of this book, other qualities are added to these four that we just read. He is a one-woman man. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And that's where the, some of you are familiar with the program, Covenant Eyes. That's where the name came from. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman a second time in lust. We learn he is fair with his servants, even when they have an HR disagreement against him. We learn that he is caring towards those who are vulnerable. We just saw the, the foster care video. He is caring for those people, the poor, the widows, the, the orphans, even to the point of making or activating a foster care uh, system. He put nothing before God, whether his money or his status. He shows compassion even against his enemies. And he shows hospitality to everyone, regardless of who they are. They are. It's really quite an impressive list. But here's the, the bottom line. The reason why Job lived this way was not to earn God's favor. The reason why he lived this way was because he had the eternal view of God. That's the lens through which he looked at everything. Not the stuff in this life, because stuff can come and go. But through the lens of eternity to the God to whom he belonged. He lived in light of eternity instead of in light of today. And I would argue that that is what Job tried to instill in his children 
as well. We are helping, we're to help our children understand both the joys and the heartaches in their lives by helping them process them, looking at those things through God's lens, through the eternal perspective. Does that make sense? That's what we hopefully do as they move from dependence to independence, but dependence upon, total dependence upon God. So <clears throat> what this means is that Job's status as a wealthy CEO did not control his, his, his life. Uh, if everything had been taken away from Job, he'd still be Job. He'd still be the same man with the same values. Now, of course, you can say that. I mean, you can say that, right? If you take all these things away from me, I'd still love God. You can say that. When things are going well, the wife, children, the, the, the money, the status, the respect, the power, the prestige, you can claim an eternal view of God. And that was Satan's challenge. We only love God as long as he bribes us with good stuff, with comfortable lives. Remove that. And we'll see what happens to that eternal view of God. Which is what God actually permitted in this story. But our first glimpse of Job that we just introduced, uh, that just introduced us to him, our first glimpse of Job is of this man who is a great dad in great circumstances. The rest of the book of Job reveals a broken dad in terrible circumstances. But for right now, <clears throat> our, our focus is on these first five verses. We read the first three. But in, the, in this moment, in this moment, Job's children would have known what their dad placed his value on. He had the money, the power, the respect, the family, and all that. But they knew he had a higher priority. And get this, as we're going we're gonna to see, he, his priority included, first of all, his relationship with God. That was his priority. And then beyond that, his wife's relationship to God. And then beyond that, his money. No, no, I'm sorry. Beyond that, his children's relationship with God. And I'd make the case throughout the rest of the book, his friend's relationship with God, his servant's relationship with God, all the way down. But... And, and we can make the case for these things, but we're going to focus on the children and make some observations uh, loosely connected with our text. Look at verses 4 and 5. Job chapter 1, verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. What is his day? Chapter 3, verse 1. Job cursed the day he was born. His day. Same phrase. Birthday. Got it? Yesterday, Betsy and I, with her brother and sisters, celebrated her mother's 101st birthday. It was her day. So, um, he used to, they used to have a feast in the house of each one on his day. Now, this is a time of celebration, a time of joy, a time where expectations are high, right? Feelings are, are, are very positive and very encouraging. There's a lot of laughter. That's 
what we're supposed to think about that. And just to be clear, they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So what you have here, again, is this is not a sinful gathering. This is not an order. You don't invite your sisters to that. This is a time of celebration. And Job recognizes it as that. It's, a, it's where the brothers and sisters are together. When the days of the feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send, and this is a continuous aspect of the verb, he, this is what he continued to do. Job would send and consecrate them, <clears throat> rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did, literally, all his days. Three observations for dads here. First of all, all his days, the centerpiece of Job's life was not his pocketbook, his portfolio, or anything like that. It was not even his family. It was the spiritual life of his family. You got that? That's a distinction. He would tell you that no matter how much money he had in his portfolio, he traded all. For his kids to follow the Lord because by comparison nothing else matters now let me be clear children make their own choices they have their own defining moments ahead of them <clears throat> and most of you know my story uh, I walked down the aisle at a Baptist church when I was seven years old got baptized because that's what the rest of the boys in my Sunday school class did and live for the devil for the next 10 years. Not actively or overtly, but I sure did in my heart. I didn't curse God in my heart, but there was nothing good in my heart. And it wasn't until I was a freshman in college that I realized, this is sink or swim time. Do I really believe this stuff? Because if it's not true, there was a lot of fun to be had. If it is true, that puts guardrails on my life that change everything. So my parents would have told you that I was saved at age seven. I believe I was saved at age 17. Now, I say that to remind those of you young people who are here that God has given you parents and they will tell you the truth about Jesus. But God doesn't have grandchildren. Your faith is not to be in your parents' faith. Your faith is to be in Jesus yourself. That's when that transition happens. So, in this moment, Job's children knew what their dad placed value on. And while your children remain under your authority, now they were, his kids were out from under that, but as they mature, our goal is for them to lean upon the Lord more and more. And it's interesting that even though his children were adults, I think the text is clear, they submitted to his spiritual leadership. There's no, nothing in the text to say, 
they're, that they're reluctantly coming to worship as a family, to submit to their father's worship of the Lord and to be a part of that. Because Job looks at it and says, maybe in their hearts. I know I don't see it. I can't detect it. But maybe in their hearts. So it's nothing, nothing overt. Nothing that he can see. As far as he can see, they're just fine with God. And, and this leads me to the second point for dads. And I don't think I'm reading into this, but Job had, developed, had a street-smart theology of sin. Okay? A street-smart theology of sin. He didn't assume that because his kids went to vacation Bible school or that they were raised going to church camps, that they were therefore okay. Because your children have to come to a point in their lives when they decide whether or not they own their faith. Now, some children make lifelong decisions for Jesus when they're four years old. And I have had, whoa, almost had a baptismal service. Well, not here. Okay. For those who are Presbyterians, there we go. I have no idea where I was. Was I preaching? We'll have a long pause for those of you who are live streaming with us. No. Uh, Your children may be saved at an early age and walk with the Lord faithfully all their lives. I have known people who have done this. That is their story. I don't think that's the norm. (laughs) I think there comes a point where those who have embraced, who who understand the truth of the gospel, embrace it as their own. And uh, maybe they were saved before then and began to follow the Lord later. That's for the Lord to know. When I was was in college, um, I had a good friend who lived on my floor who used to ridicule me regularly for being a Christian. He went forward as a middle schooler at a Billy Graham crusade and was saved, unquote. And whenever we would have a, a bull session on our floor, we had a lounge, we all would gather. Some guys would smoke certain things, and uh, which escalated the discussion. Uh, Neil would always uh, bring up somehow or other the, the Christianity that I had become to embrace the previous year. And Neil would say, you know, uh, Gary believes that even though I don't believe there's a God, he says I'm saved. Because once saved, always saved. I walk the aisle. And uh, he took great comfort in that, actually. And then one day I realized, and I said, no, 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 no. And, and I was still growing in my faith and understanding things. One day I realized in, in, our, in our discussions together, no, I think if you had really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, other than something that was superficial or external, I think you would still be following him. No, I don't think you are saved. And I think you need to be saved. And he stopped and said, well, that's more consistent. And then from that point on, he never said another word to me about it. But I had sort of, well, I'm, what I'm really saying here is that parents need 
a good, street-smart theology of sin when you look at your kids. I tried to explain to my mother, who thought I was wonderful. In high school, I tried to explain to her what I was like. And she didn't believe me. But my dad was sitting there, and he did. <laughs> so, good, street-smart street theology of sin, which means that we will never, ever, ever stop praying for our children. Another thing to infer from this, family devotions need to involve sacrificing an ox. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. But the family was engaged in this worship. They were involved in it. And the dads, according to Scripture, read Deuteronomy 6. Dads, there's your passage. Deuteronomy 6 makes it clear that we are to teach our children about the Lord. That includes formal teaching, and that includes informal teaching. When you sit down with the Word, when you walk by the wayside, he says, life is your laboratory for helping them see things with that eternal view to look thing, at things and their lives the way that God sees those things. And God, dads, God holds you responsible for that. Well, yeah, but my wife does that. No. Yes, she helps. Yes, she's involved in it. And yes, she has more time with the children. But you're the one. We're the ones that God wants to train up our children. That's God's agenda for the family. Now, we know, as we look at the story of Job, that the other shoe is about to drop. Job doesn't know that. I'm going to fast forward, real fast forward, real fast. The intervening verses record Job's, uh, Satan's challenge to God about bribing Job. He worships you because you bribe him with good things. Don't get distracted by that. Satan has always been, in Peter's words, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is your adversary, the devil. So, a moment ago I said, this is God's agenda for the family. Don't let Satan's agenda for the family abort God's agenda for your family. My point today is not the whole story of Job, but the fatherly character of Job. I do want to mention a few things about this, though, about the, the story and about what happened. You know, everything goes wrong. Satan waited until the most joyous day of the year, which was the birthday celebration of the firstborn son. Of all 365 days in the year, everything imploded on that day once God gave permission for it. Job loses his crops, his livestock, his faithful servants. And, and notice the order here. The order is important. Then he loses his children. If Job had been told about the loss of his children first, he wouldn't have heard anything else after that. Instead, it was blow after blow after blow, and then the final devastating blow. Your family's gone. In an instant, he went from being a faithful dad to a childless, broken-hearted dad with an angry, hurt, defeated wife 
And I want you to listen to Job's reactions to what had happened. And this reinforces the attitude that Job had. If you look at chapter 1, verse 20, what did Job do? He worshiped. All secondary causes vanished. Job's solution was not revenge against the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. Let's call the police. There was no political solution. He turns to the Lord as a broken father and methodically, deliberately acknowledges that God is worthy to be worshipped whether or not my life is going well, whether or not I have stuff, even whether or not my family is immediately with me because I know if I'm a believer and my children are believers that my family is with the Lord. I haven't lost them. It's the eternal view. I can trust God. That doesn't mean it is not a struggle to trust God when those fingers of faith are just holding on. But I've got some things to learn from Job here in terms of what to model before my children. Look at verse 21. This is what he says. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He is absolutely embracing both the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Because if this were outside God's permission, then Job's eternal view of God is turned upside down. It would also mean that Job's three friends were right. Or that Satan was right. Look at verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And the the idea of blaming God, let me be more specific about that. What that means is that he is not accusing God of being inconsistent with his attributes. God is not being inconsistent here if he allows this to happen. There is no inherent reason why my life should be pleasant. Because this is not life. This is a foyer to real life. And then, just to make things worse, if this is possible, it's as if God flips the switch on Job's immune system to off. And Job develops disease from head to toe. And yet, in chapter 2, verse 10, Job says to his wife, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The things that Job says here are things that only a believer with the eternal view would say. A believer whose life is not anchored in his 401k. Because we know what that looks like these days, right? A believer whose life is not anchored in his athletic abilities, whose life is not anchored in his prestige. None of those things Uh, instead his life is anchored in his God. Now, I've been harvesting some of these main points from the first part of the book of Job, but the portrait that the Bible paints of this man is is pretty vast. So what I'm going to do is, we've just been looking at him as a father only. 
going to ask you to turn to chapter 42. Job chapter 42. We're going to fast forward to that chapter. There have been many <clears throat> things said back and forth between Job and his various friends. And in chapters 38 through 41, finally, God speaks to Job. But surprisingly, he does not tie up everything into a bow and explain why Job is suffering. Instead, he gives Job a guided tour of the creation and brings Job to a point where Job realizes that even when he doesn't know why, he does know who, and that's sufficient for this life as he maintains that eternal view. Now, <clears throat> here we are in chapter 42. God restores Job's relationship with his friends, including Job's forgiveness of them. That's quite a story in itself. But for now, <clears throat> let's re-engage Job's role as a dad with that eternal view. Look at chapter 42, verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Look down at verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first, that is the first daughter, Jemima, which means a dove. He named the second one, Keziah, which means uh, something like uh, cinnamon, some aromatic plant. He named the third Karen Hapak, which means something like uh, um, beautiful color, probably referring to her eyes or something like that, possibly. Regardless of the specifics, these names ref reflect pleasantness, delight, and joy. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Before, Job had 7,000 sheep. Now he has 14,000. Before, he had 3,000 camels. Now there's 6,000. Before, 500 of the oxen, now a thousand. Now, before 500 female donkeys, now a thousand. And how many children did he have before? Ten. How many children does he have now? From the eternal view, he has twenty. Ten are with the Lord. Ten are here with me now. I want you to notice in the detailed literary precision of this book. This number was not written down long. Job now, from the eternal view, has 20 children. Betsy and I have four grandchildren who are with the Lord. Some of you have the same thing. That is, the, that is the way that God sees these things. This is a, a carefully crafted but subtle statement of the eternal view of God. And by the way, here's something else I want you to notice. In the first part of the book, once upon a time, 
the names of the sons were not given and the names of the daughters were not given and there was nothing further said about them than the listing of them and their worship with their dad of the one true God. Here, here, again, the sons are not named, but the daughters are. And you will notice something else. Verse 15 tells us that their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. That was not done. It simply was not done. It's interesting to me that Job deals with his children in a way that is countercultural. I'm, 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 I know I'm reading a bit into this, but I, I think it's clear throughout the book that Job does not let the surrounding culture, even the things that might make him look weird as a parent, determine the way he raises his children to see God with the eternal view. So, I began by saying that there are not a lot of examples of great dads in the Old Testament. Job is, to my mind, right up there at the top for me. He valued his ch children over his job, over his money, over all those things. And even more, he valued their spiritual lives. That's what came first. He understood the self-deceiving power of sin because parents need street smart theology of sin so that they never forget to continue to pray for their children he exemplified the truth that god is worthy of worship without being bribed or by a comfortable life he is worthy of worship whether our lives are comfortable or not whether our lives are good the way we would define it or not that is the eternal view of god and he raised his children in a countercultural way, drawing them into worship and doing with them what he would do, seeking their eternal good, even if it seemed perhaps foolish to other parents around him. This, let me put it this way, regardless of the surrounding culture, parents, you, you raise your children. <laughs> he doesn't raise your children culture doesn't raise your children you raise the school doesn't raise your children you raise your children so just to be clear on two things in closing first of all no human parent is going to get this right and at that point everybody sitting here ought to be thinking oh thank you god no human parent is going to get this right at least all the time for sure i love this statement you've heard me refer to it in hebrews 12 our earthly parents disciplined us or trained us as seemed best to them. <laughs> we do the best we can. We're not going to get it right all the time. We do our best, and then we pray. And he gives us the joy and the privilege of showing the, a father's heart, the heart of God, to our children. So, first, we're not going to always get it right. Secondly, being a good parent, being a good dad, doesn't mean your children won't turn away from the Lord. Doesn't mean they won't turn away from you either. God is the perfect heavenly father. Yet over and over and over again in scripture, his children rebelled. They turned away from him. 
Sometimes they turned to other gods. But God is also the father of the prodigal who stands with his arms wide open for that child to return. There are times I wish I could live my children's lives for them. I just wish, but, you know, I, I want them to avoid my mistakes, to say, no, no, don't go down that road. I did, it backfired. You're going to regret it forever. Don't do that. You want to protect them to the point of even taking the suffering onto yourself. I will promise you that Shane, when Ian was hurt, would, on that motorcycle ride, Lord, I w you want to protect them, you want, instead of it happening to my child, it didn't happen to me. Substitute me. That's what the Heavenly Father did. He substituted Jesus. God became flesh. Went, dwelt among us. So that we would not have to endure hell. So that we would not have to endure judgment. I want you to close with the very familiar words of our Heavenly Father. You've, you've heard these many times. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Psalm, Psalm 103 verse 13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. Father, we thank you for being our heavenly father. We pray, Lord, that we would be your faithful children, serve you well. And Lord, I pray that you would bless the, what is now about to happen, the Smith family, the children who are here in the back to see it. And Lord, that as a church family, we would glorify you. We celebrate this in Jesus' name.